passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. I'm glad to, to open up Mark again uh, with you. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, verses 53 through 72. This is the trial of Jesus uh, by the religious authorities as we are inching ever closer um, to, to the crucifixion and uh, to the resurrection as we come to the end of Mark's gospel. And I would venture a guess that this passage, like last week's passage, um, can be one of those passages where our, our familiarity with this text can be our undoing. We can be so familiar with this passage, uh, with the arrest of Jesus, with this trial of Jesus, uh, that, that we've seen it, we've heard it so many times that it can be our undoing uh, because of our familiarity with it, and we might lose the meaning of this passage. And as we approach this text, I, I just want uh, us to consider a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he has a collection of essays called, God is in the Dock. And uh, he, he says this in, in one of his essays, for the modern man or woman... He or she is the judge. God is the one who is in the dock. But the modern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, then the modern man is ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that the man is on the bench and God is the one who is in the dock. And while circumstances today may be very different than they were in the first century in our passage this morning, I think the reality of this passage uh, sinks home because it's, it's describing something that's very similar to, to us today, our own hearts today, that oftentimes God is left defending himself to us. The roles have, have been reversed. Rather than God being the judge, instead we sit as the judge over God. And of course, this sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? But the reality is, it is also quite true. Whether you're a Christian or not, oftentimes, all too often, our questions of why can have an accusatory tone to them. They can have this undercurrent of, well, you are clearly doing it wrong, God. And when God is put on trial, how does he respond? In a sense, that's what we get from this morning's text, the trial of God's Son. As we approach this text, I just want to briefly remind ourselves of Mark 14 to this point. Mark 14 starts with the revelation that the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. They've been plotting to put Jesus to death. And then in verses 10 and 11, they get their, their trump card or what they've been looking for this entire time. And that is Judas being willing to betray Jesus into their hands. After that, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Now, if we're familiar, if we remember the Passover, the celebration of God's salvation for his people, Israel, his salvation from slavery to Egypt, as well as the calling of the people of Israel to be his new people. And Jesus turns this celebration on its head and begins to talk about a new Passover, a new deliverance from slavery, not to, to the Egyptians, but slavery to sin. And a new calling as God's new people, not just the people of Israel, but anyone who would follow him now can be a part of his family. And immediately after that declaration, we see that Jesus declares that all of his disciples will fall away from him. 
All of them will abandon him, and that's something that all of the disciples vehemently deny. They say, well, other, other people might do that, but, but we won't. Then we turn to the garden, and Jesus is in the garden, and here we see that Jesus is, is wrestling with the, the desire to, to follow God or, or to go his own way, to, to avoid the cross or to, to follow his Father's will. And we see that he actually wrestles his own desires into submission as he follows the Father, the Father's plan in the path of obedience to the cross. And through prayer, he steals his will to remain obedient to God, even though he knows everything is about to happen. Everything, all the pain, the suffering, the, the challenges of the cross. Jesus remains faithful to his Father. And right after that, we see the arrest. The temple guards show up to arrest him. His disciples flee and abandon him. And then we get to this morning's text. It's a, it's a long passage. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in, but here's what I want us to do. Just give us our roadmap this morning. First, we're going to pray, then we're going to walk through this text, and then we're going to consider five truths or, or five implications of this passage for us this morning. So let's go ahead and, and pray as we approach God's word. Father, we, we ask that our familiarity with this text, that it would not be our undoing. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see what you are saying, not just to us as the church body, but, but us as individuals, every single person here, Spirit, that you would speak to us and say exactly what we need to hear from this text. God, I ask that you would use this text to draw us near to your Son, to grow in our love for him, our adoration for him, that you would enable each and every one of us to respond to this passage with repentance where it is needed, wholehearted devotion in following you, that as we examine our lives and our hearts, that we would see clearly the areas where we have not surrendered them to you. And God, as we consider this text and, and the worthiness of your Son, that we would respond in surrender. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This text picks up immediately after Jesus' disciples abandon him in Mark 14, 50 through 52. Jesus is arrested in the garden fleeing of the disciples. Then we get to verse 53 where we see that Jesus is put on trial by the religious authorities. Let's go ahead and jump in starting in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. One of the things that we have repeatedly observed in Mark's gospel is that Mark will give us a number of details here in this passage to, to underscore that this is an illegitimate trial. He just wants that to be very clear, that this is an illegitimate trial. It's taking place in the middle of the night, which is illegal. It's taking place at the house of the high priest, which is illegal. It is taking place on a feast day, which is illegal. And standing 2,000 years from this moment, that might not be a big deal to us, but we, we need to understand the importance of what Mark is doing here. Mark is defending the faith. He's defending the faith to skeptics who would hear that Jesus is crucified in the first century, and they would immediately think, well, that, that isn't someone worth following. If someone is crucified, then that means that they are scum. So Mark is going to great lengths here to, to stress the innocence of Jesus. And we're going to see this prop up over and over and over as we look at Jesus' trial here. 
One of the other things that we've seen in our time in Mark is uh, we've talked a lot about structure to the point where you probably roll your eyes when you hear me talk about the structure of Mark. Mark is very intentional in how he orders the stories in his gospel. And one of his favorite methods is called the sandwich method, where he will start a story, he'll start a theme, he'll press pause on that right in the middle of it, and then he'll switch to a second one, and he'll follow that story or theme to its conclusion, and then he'll go back to the original one. And that's what we see here in this passage. Notice that Mark begins by talking about Peter, doesn't he? In verse 54, he says that Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest. He's followed Jesus at a distance to this moment. And then Mark presses pause on the story of Peter and goes to the story of what's actually happening in the trial of Jesus. That's what's taking place in the house of the high priest. And then after that, in verse 66, he picks up again and describes what is taking place with Peter. Why does he do this? It's, it's to set these two as a contrast for us. On the one hand, we have Jesus. We have the obedient son, the one who is standing before the powers of the day, and he is remaining faithful to God. And then on the other hand, we have Peter, a man who is standing before a powerless little girl. And not only is he slightly disobedient, but he wholeheartedly denies he has any association with Jesus. All in accordance with the scriptures. So Jesus is brought before the religious authorities of Judaism in that day. Verse 53 mentions the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. These are the, the group of people who hold the most power in the first century in that day. They had reached a, a sort of agreement with the Roman authorities where the Romans were in charge, of course, but, but as long as they, they did certain things, they would remain in, in places of power and, and, and positions of affluence, and, and they hated Jesus because Jesus threatened everything that they had set up in their favor. They'd stacked the deck in their favor, and Jesus threatened everything. And so they're going to do all they can in their power to get rid of Jesus. That's what we see in the purpose of this trial, verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Mark is very explicit here with the purpose of this trial. This group isn't interested in truth. They're not interested in deciding whether, whether Jesus is, is innocent or, or not. They've already reached the conclusion that he is deserving of death. And they just, they just need to find the evidence that will support the conclusion that they have already reached. Remember, Rome is in power at this moment. They're, Rome is the one who has the power of the sword, the one who has the authority to put Jesus to death. And so this fake trial in the middle of the night, it's this desperate attempt to find good enough of, of a reason to tell to the Roman authorities so that they can put Jesus to death for the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. But Mark makes clear here at the end of verse 55 that they can't find a reason. There's no reason to put Jesus to death. He goes into greater detail starting in verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Again, one thing that is, is worth noting about this trial is that while the religious authorities have no qualms in hearing false, false testimony, false witnesses, which, by the way, it, it breaks the ninth commandment, doesn't it? They have no problem with that, but they at the same time want to give the appearance of following the law, the appearance of being legitimate. So they ignore the ninth commandment, this idea of bearing false witness, but 
They are intent on keeping other commandments, commandments like in Deuteronomy chapter 19, which says you can't put anyone to death on just the basis of one witness. You need at least two or three witnesses to put them to death. Of course, here's another piece of evidence that this trial is illegitimate. The religious authorities are willing to listen to false testimony. This trial should have been thrown out the moment that they heard contradictory evidence from these false witnesses. But even the false witnesses, they can't keep this together. They can't keep their story straight. They can't, they can't be consistent. The religious authorities, they, they keep going. Mark gives us a specific example, verse 57. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So one of the attempts of all of these false witnesses is to uh, trap Jesus or, 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 or claim that Jesus has, uh, has decided that he is going to, to destroy the temple. And there's just one problem. Jesus has never actually said this. Jesus never says that he is going to destroy the temple. John 2 tells us that he says something similar, but it's very explicit. He's talking about his body and his, his death and his resurrection. But in Mark, we never see Jesus say anything about destroying the temple. Yes, in Mark 13, he, he prophecies that the temple will be destroyed, but he never says that it will be him who destroys it. He talks about his own death and resurrection in three days, and yet he never talks about destroying and bringing up the temple in three days. It seems like people are getting confused about Jesus' teaching about the, the upcoming destruction of the temple and also his teaching about his own death and resurrection. So consider this moment. The religious authorities, first, they break the law by listening to false witnesses, and that fails. Second, they decide to keep going on that path and use false witnesses, trying to twist Jesus' words, but even that fails. And you can almost picture the, the chief priest here. He, he's frustrated with how this trial is going. He, he wanted it to go a different way. He wanted to have an outcome where Jesus is condemned to death. And so he's got one last attempt, and that is to get Jesus to condemn himself with his own words. And that's what we see starting in verse 60. The high priest stood up in, the midst, in their midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, this is an illegitimate question from the high priest, isn't it? Jesus shouldn't have to defend himself to false accusations. Everyone in the room should be able to see that these accusations are false. The contradictory evidence of these testimonies proves that they are false. Jesus shouldn't have to defend himself when these accusations, they aren't even clear. But the chief priest chooses to accuse him anyway. How does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with silence. And so the chief priest asks one final question. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. The question and, and Jesus' response here in verse 62, so the end of 61 and 62, they are the defining moments of this trial. They're the defining moments of this passage. Recall all the way back, Mark chapter 8. Jesus asked his disciples what people are saying about him. Mark 8, 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked disciples, what, who do people say that I am? 
Who do people say that I am? Lots of rumors are swirling around who Jesus is. Lots of people are increasingly beginning to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited king of Israel, the one who is going to make everything right. And the chief priest is is hearing all of these rumors, all of these murmurs surrounding, surrounding Jesus, and he wants an answer from Jesus himself. Who are you? How does Jesus respond? Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus' answer here, at least from the perspective of the chief priests, is, is everything he could have hoped for and more. Everything that he could have hoped for and more. Not only does Jesus claim to be the Messiah, but he also claims to be the divine Son of Man. The one who is seated at God's right hand. The one who is enthroned forever with God himself. Jesus alludes here to to Psalm 110 verse 1, where where it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus' claim here is incredibly audacious. If not, it might not be outright blasphemous, but most people would have considered this to be incredibly arrogant if it wasn't true. If what Jesus is saying isn't true, then it is incredibly arrogant. But, but of course, the, the testimony of Mark's gospel up to this point has made it very clear that this is true. Over and over and over in Mark's gospel, he's been proving that this is exactly who Jesus is. And the religious authorities, they've seen time and time and time again what, what the testimony of Jesus' signs and his teaching is, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And yet they are unwilling to listen. To use Jesus' language from Mark chapter 4, they do not have ears to hear, and, and this is why they respond the way they do. In verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him deserving death. I want to make clear what I'm about to say. It's not actually found in this text. This is just how I imagine this moment. So, um, you, can, you can check out for a moment if, if you'd like. But, but I think that the, the actions of the chief priest here, as he's tearing his clothes, he's, he's, he's acting outraged on the outside over this answer that Jesus has given. On the inside, he's delighted. He's ecstatic. He is thrilled because he wants to kill Jesus more than anything. And Jesus have, has given him exactly what he needs in order to condemn Jesus to death. Now, regardless of whether that's true or not, the text is very clear that the response of the entire council that is sitting here, they get exactly what they were looking for. They want to put Jesus to death, and Jesus will be put to death because of what he has just said. They all condemn Jesus to death. The trial closes in verse 65. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophecy. And the guards received him with blows. 
Again, we see the illegitimacy of this trial, don't we? This isn't a public flogging, which would have been allowed under Jewish law. This is the back alley mob that is beating up a helpless man. This is mocking this man, this Jesus, who many believe to be a prophet, by blindfolding him and spitting on him and hitting him and saying, if you're really a prophet, then go ahead and prophesy and tell us who has hit you. Do you see the irony of that statement? A couple chapters earlier, Jesus, this man that they are mocking as a false prophet, said this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But after three days, he will rise. They mock Jesus as a false prophet, and in so doing, they fulfill Jesus' prophecy as the true prophet of God. What's more, immediately after this, we see another prophecy of Jesus fulfilled, don't we? Early in Mark chapter 14, we saw Jesus predict prophecy that all of his disciples would fall away, and specifically Peter, that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows twice. And we're about to see that prophecy be fulfilled in the denial of Peter. See, verses 53 through 65, they're the story of Jesus put on trial by the religious authorities. Uh, the, the second half of this passage, 66 through 72, that's the story of Peter put on trial. But it's not by the religious authorities, it's instead by a little slave girl. While Jesus remains faithful in the face of the power brokers of Israel, Peter will fall away in the face of a powerless little girl. One of my favorite stories, um, trilogies, if you will, is The uh, Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. I, I just absolutely love it. Uh, whenever I read the story of Peter's denial, I actually think of, a, uh, of some of the language that Tolkien uses to describe one of his characters. Lord of the Rings, in, in the second book, The Two Towers, there is this character, Faramir, who is, uh, he encounters this great temptation. He encounters the ring of power, which must be destroyed. It's fallen into his hands, and he has the opportunity to seize it, to take power, and to lead his people to victory, at least temporary victory. But if he does that, then lasting victory will be forever lost. And as he is wrestling with this temptation, Faramir, he's reflecting on this moment. He says, a pretty stroke of fortune, a chance for Faramir, captain of Gondor, to show his quality. I love that phrase. That's the phrase that I always think of when I think of Peter's denial, this chance to show his quality. That's, that's Peter in this moment. Peter has confidently asserted to this point that he will not fall away, even though everyone else abandons Jesus, that he will stay Jesus even if he has to die with him. And to Peter's credit, everyone else has abandoned Jesus. He has followed Jesus at a distance, yes, but to the courtyard of the high priest. And now is the moment for Peter to show his quality. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway 
and the rooster crowed. So Peter is approached by a slave girl, and the text couldn't emphasize someone who is less powerful in in that day and age. This is a, a culture that devalues women, it devalues slaves, it devalues youth. And in the face of this, Peter panics, and he backs out of the courtroom through the gateway to the outer courtyard, and the rooster crows for the first time. It's almost like God is giving him a, a sign, saying, Peter, you are so close to failing. You still have a chance to succeed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. A second time, this little girl finds Peter and she says, not, not to Peter, but to those who are surrounding Peter, hey, this is, this is one of this man's disciples, one of this man's followers. It's not a question. It's just a, a statement from this little girl. And again, Peter denies it. After a little while, with the, while the bystanders again said to, to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And a third time, Peter is approached, this time by those who are standing around him. This time, it's a declaration that you are one of of Jesus' followers. Your accent betrays that you are Galilean. And Jesus is the famous Galilean who is on trial up in that room. So you must be one of his followers. There's no other reason for you to be here in the middle of the night. What is the quality of of Peter, Jesus' closest friend? But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The full weight of Peter's denial, I think it's only clear when we begin to understand what the text means when it talks about this curse that Peter invokes upon himself. Peter isn't swearing here. He's, he's not using foul language. Instead, he's taking an oath. If we look at the, the curses that people in the Old Testament would pronounce, uh, it would be something like this. Jesus is, remember, Jesus is on trial just in, in this upper room, and, and Peter and, and everyone around him knows what's taking place up there. And Peter says something, something like this. May God judge me. May God judge me as, as severely as, as, as that man up there who is being judged right now, condemned to death. May God judge me as, as much as he is judging him if I am lying about knowing him. God, treat me just as you are treating that man up there if I'm lying about actually knowing him. So extreme is his denial of the Son of God that he welcomes the curse of God as his witness. And immediately after that, the rooster crows and Jesus' words are fulfilled and Peter is broken. The narrative of of Mark chapter 14 and Mark 15 marches ever onward to the cross. This week, as Jesus is is forsaken by the Jewish people, 
Next week, we see that Jesus is forsaken by the rest of the nations, by the Gentiles. And maybe, maybe if you're like me, you're, you're left wondering, okay, what does is, what is this passage teach us today? Not just about the events that are leading us to the cross, but how else does this passage speak to my life today? Consider, I think, five brief truths. The first one is this, Peter's failure highlights the wonder of Jesus' obedience. Peter's failure highlights the wonder of Jesus' obedience. We discussed this throughout Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, from the very beginning, is talking about Jesus' disciples falling away, abandoning him, proving that they are not worthy, that they are, are failed disciples, and they stand in sharp contrast to the obedience of Jesus to his Father's plan. And nowhere is that clearer than right here in the contrast between Jesus, faithful before the power brokers of Israel, and Peter, a failure of a disciple before a little girl. The melody of this passage over and over and over again is Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. As Peter fails before a little slave girl, Jesus remains faithful in a court that is stacked against him. We should, we should stand in awe of Jesus' obedience right here to his Father's plan that through it all, as we become increasingly aware of Peter's failure and our own failure, of just how marvelous and wonderful and amazing what Jesus is doing in this moment. As we see Peter's failure, it, it should not lead us to a point where we say, I can't believe Peter. No, it should lead us to a point where, where we begin to think of our own daily rejections of Jesus, the, the daily ways that we fail him with our words and with our actions and with our thoughts, where our mind dwells, the, the, the longings of our hearts. That we are like Peter in this passage, and that stands in sharp contrast to the obedience of God's Son to the point of death, even death on a cross. Peter's failure and Jordan's failure highlights the wonder, the amazement of Jesus' obedience. Second, this text teaches us that God's representative rejects God's Son. God's representative rejects God's Son. One of the most awful parts of this story is the, the role of the, the chief priest. The chief priest was meant to be God's representative to the people and the people's representative before God. And yet, here we see the chief priest rejects the very Son of God himself. And I think in doing so, he condemns every other possible way to God that we could possibly find. Remember the role of the chief priest. The chief priest was the only one of all humanity who was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself is said to dwell. He's the only one who was allowed to enter into the presence of God, and yet here he is standing in the presence of God's Son, and he condemns him to death. And if, if that's the case here, how on earth could there be any other possible way for us to be into God's presence? If the rep representative of God rejects the Son of God, 
then we see here on full display the inadequacy of our attempts to get into God's presence on our own. We need a new and a better way. Third, this text makes it clear that there will be no Messiah, no Christ, no no Savior, no salvation without a cross. I mentioned earlier that the key to this passage is the chief priest's question at the end of verse 61 and Jesus' response in, in verse 62. Here's why, or at least part of the reason why. Because this is the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus admits that he is the Christ, where he is the Messiah. At this point, demons have cried out and said, you are the son of God, and he's told them to be quiet. Those who have been healed have said, you must be the Messiah, and Jesus has demanded silence. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus' disciples say, you must be the Messiah, you must be the Christ, and he says, don't tell anyone. It's not until here, in this moment, that Jesus finally acknowledges that he is the Messiah in the context of his own crucifixion as he is condemned to death. Why did Jesus wait until this moment for this declaration? It's because he's making clear that there can be no Messiah without the cross. We cannot possibly have a Messiah. We cannot possibly have the the kingdom of God. We cannot possibly enter into God's presence. We cannot possibly have a restored creation. We cannot possibly have salvation without a cross. Remember Jesus' mission from his own lips in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says that he will give himself as a ransom for many, and there will be no ransom without a cross. And for every single person here this morning, there can be no salvation because there will be no Savior without a cross. Fourth, the judged Messiah will soon stand as judge. The judged Messiah will soon stand as judge. Notice what else Jesus says in verse 62. He doesn't just say that, yes, I am the Messiah. He also, even though he is being condemned by this human court, he declares that that's not going to have the final say in the end. He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from from Daniel 7. He he quotes from Psalm 110. He, He says that you may be standing over me in judgment today, but there will be a day when I will stand in judgment over you, that the day is coming where the risen Jesus will be enthroned to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. The day is coming when Jesus, who is a suffering servant now, will return as the judge of all the earth. And Mark includes it right here because he is pleading with every single one of us. Anyone who hears his gospel to take this seriously, to take who Jesus is seriously, to recognize that the day of his vindication draws ever nearer when he will come as judge. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Psalm 110 again, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The judged Messiah will soon return as judge, as my judge, and as your judge. Jesus makes that very clear here in this passage, that unless we are found in him, The alternative is that he will do exactly what Psalm 110 tells us, that those who are his enemies, he will subdue all of them under Jesus' feet. The judged Messiah will soon stand as as judge. But how do we escape? How do we escape this day of judgment? The key is found in the final truth. It's simply this. Peter's curse will fall on Jesus. Peter's curse is going to fall on Jesus. Peter declared, let me be accursed if I am lying about knowing Jesus. If I have anything to do with Jesus, let me be accursed. And because of that curse, and because of the curse of all of Peter's failure and all of his sin, Peter stands condemned. He stands with no hope. He deserves to be separated from God forever, forsaken forever, outside of the kingdom of God forever because of the curse of sin. And yet, because of the obedience of the Son of God, Peter's curse will not fall on Peter, but it will fall on Jesus. Jesus will become the accursed one, not Peter. And the same can be said for every single one of us as well. That Peter's curse has fallen on Jesus. Jordan's curse has fallen on Jesus. And if we place our hope and our faith and our trust, if we respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, then your curse for all of your failures, it can fall on Jesus as well. What is this text trying to teach us? The suffering Messiah will soon stand as judge. The suffering Messiah will soon stand in judge as judge. The one that we all too often stand in judgment over, asking these scathing questions, doubting the goodness of, the, the ridiculing way that we describe God. The suffering Messiah will soon stand as judge. And if you're not a Christian this morning, or, or if you say that you are a Christian, but you examine your priorities in your life, you examine the fruit of your life, you, you examine what your life is really about, and, and you see that, that it's, it's lacking, are you willing to see that the one that, that you stand in judgment over will one day stand in judgment over you. The one that you have a lot of questions for, and I'll be honest, I have questions for God, a lot of whys in my life. 
The one you have a lot of questions for, we should be a lot more concerned about the questions that he has for us. The suffering Messiah will soon stand as judge. What of each of us? Will we be like the high priest standing in derision over the Son of God? Or will we be like Peter? No matter how great the failure, no matter how great the sin, no matter how awful and painful it may be, that that curse falls not on us, but on Jesus. Thank God there is a way to escape the judgment of the coming judge. Because he's not just judge. He's also Messiah who willingly bared the curse for our sin so that we could be spared the coming judgment. Let's pray. Father, it is It's hard to hear and to think seriously about all of the ways that we have failed you, the ways that we are inadequate before you. And God, I ask that this text and the example of Peter would help us to see that more clearly. that Peter isn't a bigger failure than each of us. He's just the one that God chose to include in Scripture so that your Spirit could help us to see our own shortcomings and failures and the curses that we have pronounced upon ourselves through our own actions. We ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have all too often stood in judgment over you, asking questions of you, demanding much of you. When we should instead delight in the message of the gospel. God, I ask that you would help us to cling to that message, cling to the gospel. The fact that we don't just have a just judge who is coming, but first he came, you came as a suffering servant so that we could be a part of your family forever. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.